Welcome, everybody, to Never Stay Dead, long-awaited podcast. We've uh, been delaying for months now, um, but we have decided, or I have decided, that we should talk about what if. Particularly, there's been a bunch of. I was going to give a number, but it's what if number one, and all the recent what ifs have been what if number one. Uh, what if Flash Thompson became Spider-Man? Is a recent comic written by Jerry Conway, art by some artist I never heard of. So, welcome, Matt. Hey, internet, how you doing? Matt loves the internet. So, um, I was kind of trying to seduce Matt into this subject by picking something Spider-Man related, and so he'll probably have a lot more insight, which I'm looking forward to hearing, or perhaps not. Maybe I'm putting you under pressure. But I, uh, so I, I bouncing. So we'll talk about the Flash Thompson Spider-Man recent one. We can talk about what if in general. Some other. I've been reading a lot of what if lately, uh, and I okay. think you've been reading some, and see where 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 that takes us. Sure. So. So yeah. One, yeah. Shall we dive right into Flash Thompson first, and then talk about what if in general after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could branch out, but uh, this is part of the new rash of what if they're doing. That seems to just be a moment in time to maybe fill a a bunch of one shot. Slot. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. It always was one shots. Um, one shot imaginary stories. Are well, from other dimensions. For a short while, what if had its own bizarre continuity that carried through to other what ifs? But oh, totally uh, missed that. <laughs> yeah, I, nobody liked it. I don't think. <laughs> was that in one of the later volumes of What If? I think it was. I don't remember when it happened. I thought it was in volume one because I think that's oh. the only one that ran long enough for it to happen. But that's true. Well, later on at Marvel. You know, by the 80s, there were some people in control who were very continuity, huge lovers of the continuity, like Mark Grunewald and some other people who did a lot of work to hook up all of the continuity in Marvel Comics. So perhaps that influence was going on at that time. But now we have a an oldie but a goodie, a classic writer, Jerry Conway, the killer of Gwen Stacy, the ultimate subject of many a what, what if i suppose um coming back i guess he's recently done some other spider related uh comics which i've not read but coming back to play in the what if sandbox with what if flash thompson became spider-man which i'll i guess i guess i'll give a quick overview basically shows us flash thompson as a very violent version of spider-man who loves to physically punish the villains as much as possible and um and then peter parker who is just a photographer has his dying aunt who he figures out that spider-man can get a hold of an isotope that might save his aunt so he tracks spider-man down to where flash thompson lives and um flash thompson is so angry at him because he thinks that part of his bad publicity comes from Peter Parker, Flash Thompson so angry at him that he punches him without holding back and kills him and then feels horrible guilt, goes out and finds the master planner who has the isotope, gets the isotope for Aunt May and then turns himself into the police. 
too late for spoiler warnings. Um, but so that's the very short gist of this story. It's a quite a short story, really. Um, but well, and I do want to note real quick because you said spoilers, but it's what if true. saying that everyone dies isn't really a spoiler, it's an expectation, it's kind of a given in what ifs. Lots of people have end tragically. So at the end, he turns himself into the police and presumably is off to spend the rest of his life in prison, or maybe since it's manslaughter, a little less than the rest of his life. Uh, and I guess my big takeaway when I, the first time I read it was, wow, Jerry Conway can do modern comics pretty well. Cause some of these people can't. <laughs> uh, I, like so lean wing, Len Wayne, when he came back into the swamp thing was very retro. So what do you, wow. feel, what's your thought on that? that? That's Len Wayne coming back to do you know, swamp thing. That's you wanted the old school stuff. Presumably Jerry Conway, man. So during one moment in Dan Slott's 10 year run, Jerry Conway did a uh, side story that influenced some of the gang crime aspect going on in Spider-Man at the time that was called, uh, God, if I remember right, Spiral. And I didn't know about that. It, it fit in great. Jerry Conway is just, he's great. He's a great guy. I've heard a ton of interviews with him. We we saw him we at Rose together at, at the con. Was that this year or the year? Two this year. Yeah. This year. Yeah. Just, yeah, just weeks ago, Damien. Could have listened to him for three more hours. Oh, yeah. No. And when it comes to Spider-Man, him talking about it, uh, he's just the great. And I heard him put it one way once because he kind of missed the true height of comics at like the 90s and 2000s with some stuff. So he says he doesn't really have a big head about it. And he's really grateful for all of his fans that people right. remember. Well, he's gone off to Hollywood, I think, and worked on things like uh, Murder, She Wrote and various other TV. So he he probably wisely at the time when there wasn't that much money in comics moved on to Hollywood. And so probably now he's retired and, and just does this for fun, I assume. Right. But yeah, this issue, I mean, really takes it back to even before when he was writing Spider-Man and really plays on this uh, bully Flash Thompson. And, you know, what if he got the powers? Oh, Flash Thompson. Because Flash was softened up a bit over the years. And yeah, once he became a hero uh, in Venom. And a bit before when he was the vet that, you know, inspired Spider-Man to new heights i guess though right, not really i had to I haven't read much of those ones where he comes back as a vet but i vaguely recall it which i think very uh shoot you know i did i didn't look that hard but conway had a hand in some of that flash tops of development too so i think it's a character conway's had i mean obviously had some influence on over the years since right he's pretty brutal on flash here i don't know <laughs> oh, he's a real thug and he he uses yeah the Thug. I was at so in the opening sequence where he's beating up some villains, there's a um there's a set of captions. I might even read them, I think. Captions about being in the army. My first day in basic, the DI told us it wasn't his job to make us soldiers. I can give you a weapon, he said. I can teach you to use it, he said. And it's done, it's done really well you know, uh, against the backdrop of a bunch of pictures of Spider-Man beating up villains. I can train you to fight, make you make, make your bunk, police your barracks, 
strip and clean your MIG, march, march and step and shout, yes, sir. What I can't do is make you a soldier. That's something you do, dedicating your life to duty, honor, country. That's your choice. As long as you're in the army, it's a choice you make every day. Duty, he said. Honor, he said. Mm -hmm. um, that's what separates a thug with a gun from a soldier. Now, when I started reading this, I thought, well, Flash Thompson went to Vietnam, and this is him, his thoughts over put over the pictures. Only later did I realize that was actually Nick Fury, who is the watcher. <laughs> narration about it. What if? That's the better what if, right? <laughs> but that's real in the DC, in the Marvel Universe at some point, or maybe now, that Nick Fury has become the Watcher. Right, which is... Odd. I can't wrap my mind around that very well. Because I thought the Watcher was a race, one of a race of aliens who have this super ability to watch, not a mantle that can be passed. But I haven't read the comics, the specific comics where Fury became the Watcher. Well, Fury's a trans watcher. You know, he identifies as watchers. Oh, now we just... Watcher identification. <laughs> I... But, but th that's kind of the key to this book is the idea that uh, having powers doesn't make you a hero. Having a gun doesn't make you a hero or a good soldier. Um, there's something else to it. And well, Yeah, and I think that's really resonating right now because we've dealt with a lot of people... Yeah, in the comic book community who, you know, may have had a military background, but are kind of jerks. I did wonder if it was aimed specifically at people like that who uh, constantly reference their experience in the army as their excuse for slamming people they don't like in comics. Or, or one specific person, I should say, that I know of. Um, the most popular of the comic skaters. But I don't know if Jerry Conway was aware of that when he wrote this script or not. If I had read this five years ago, I would have thought it was just a commentary on Flash Thompson and other bullies who think they're heroes, even though they aren't heroes. Right. Um, because well, just, just having the power doesn't make you a hero. Well, and even if I'm extrapolating and that wasn't the intent, right? I, I think that reading whether or not it's that specific person or but that kind of person right. and seeing that makes this comic resonate in a way that you know a lot of comics do i mean you see that line brought up with the punisher you know old old fury comics or well and sergeant and rock if you really want to get political about it you can you can look at it as a a question of looking at the power of our country as it's, you know, since the Soviet Union fell, we're the most powerful country in the world. Just because we have that power doesn't make us the hero. We have to act like the hero to be the hero. I, suppose. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I, that's I, political. I seem to go there when I start thinking about this. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that has to be political, talking about abuse of power and station and all that. That's, that's any which way. Well, by political, I guess I'm thinking because... Um, I don't know. The, the The power of the United States has a different feel to me. Maybe I'm just bringing in too much of my age here because I grew up in, in the Cold War era and the power of the United States now has a different feel when we don't have, you know, the, the very clear um, opposing force. We now have to take more responsibility for it. I mean, we had to back then too, but it's something right. to really think about. <clears throat> but who knows if Jerry Conway was was stretching it that far. It's also kind of a, 
a reinforcement of what a hero Peter Parker was that he, he managed to, to make something out of his power. Although perhaps he was lucky to have abused his power at the very beginning in a more mild way and, and cause Uncle Ben or not be able to save Uncle Ben from his killer. Right. So he was kind of lucky to get his lesson in morality before he became a criminal himself, perhaps. That's hard. I, I don't think Jerry Conway's thinking that, but it's not impossible that. And I think there probably is a what if there of what if Uncle Ben that never died. I pretty, I feel like I've seen that somewhere. Oh, that that's definitely got to be a what if. I mean, though we've had at this point with the Spider Verse, you know, all kinds of version of Uncle Ben, and what if Uncle Ben became Spider Man? A couple different ways. So I haven't seen the what if Uncle Ben. That's funny. Is there? I know there's a what if, um, Robbie, not Robbie Robertson. What if uh, J. Jonah Jameson's son, John Jameson, became Spider Man? But it would be fun if there's one where J. Jonah Jameson becomes Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll write that someday when I take over Marvel. Yeah, that sounds good. Did you have other takeaways on this particular issue? Well, so. I mean, part of what gets me about this issue, as it does with a lot of what ifs, is it kind of takes one element and then the rest feels relatively status quo. Like Peter still has to take pictures of Spider-Man, you know, right. uh, Spider-Man still has to get into the same debacles and handle the same thing. It's kind of funny to me that it's not like this one thing changes and then from there the dominoes would fall where they may. Like, I don't understand why Peter Parker's taking pictures of Spider-Man now. What's the connection? That's true. I mean, before he had a special way to take pictures with his webbing and everything. Mm. I think it was the, the idea that um, that Flash Thompson is more violent than Peter Parker raised a bit of a question mark in my head because right after reading this one, I don't want to discuss it in depth because I don't think it was that good, but I read What If Spider-Man Had Rescued Gwen Stacy, which was done, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s. Um, written by Tony Isabella and art by Gil Kane. And there was a scene where he's going after the mob mobsters that are, are joining the Green Goblin. So these are non-powered people. And he says, better redo your arithmetic creep. This is as he's knocking over four criminal, you know, four thugs at once. Because even after I put you and your buds in the emergency ward, I'll still have enough mad left to make darn sure near the goblin never. So he's joking about putting people in the emergency ward. They're not showing him sitting there and beating on them the way they did with Flash Thompson. But, but this depiction of Flash Thompson kind of begs the question to me, is Flash Thompson really doing that much different than what superheroes generally do, which is breaking noses, breaking jaws, knocking teeth out, you know, if you really thought about it. But Normally, especially in these 70s comics, they just gloss over it. The The criminals are just so, sort of shown, you know, Spider-Man is doing one punch and all the criminals are shown flying through the air, but he's joking about putting them in, in the emergency ward. Yeah. So, but we like to think of Peter Parker as the hero. And that that's maybe unfair of me that I undercut the whole idea, but, but it's an interesting conundrum in comics. If you want to be, if Jerry Conway wants to be kind of a person about power and responsibility, there's a lot of sloppiness on that issue in comics in terms of injury of people. 
Yeah, I, that's a question that you kind of have to raise with superheroes overall. I mean, they're beating people up to solve their problems, and how much of that is one way versus another. It's an interesting line. Alan Moore, obviously in Watchmen, believed that your average superhero is kind of a fascist. As did, uh, what was the, uh, now I can't remember. There was another series in the 80s that was all about fascistic superheroes. It was published Squadron by... Squadron Oh, there's that too, but that was more subtle because it wasn't just about beating up people. It was about oh, oh. control the entire country. Oh, martial yeah. law or something? Martial law, that's it. That was all... The, the writer of martial law says he hates superheroes, and, and so that, that concept of superheroes to him just filled him with bile, and he wrote martial law. <laughs> <sighs> well, Sai, I guess shout-outs to Howler Mouse for putting me to some of those. <laughs> Howler Mouse on YouTube for those of you who are just podcast listeners. Oh, right. He has a channel on YouTube called Howler Mouse. But I think I that's kind of an aside because I just happened <laughs> to read that line very shortly after reading this put down of Flash Thompson. No, totally. It's, you know, you could view Flash Thompson in a more sympathetic way or a less sympathetic way, and they chose to be very unsympathetic to him in this. Except that, and and there's a huge scene replicating the famous scene where uh, Spider-Man lifts the giant piece of machinery that's trapped him on the ground. But it, at the climax of the scene where he find, where Flash finally puts pushes it off, he shouts, "I'm not a hero," <laughs> which was uh, emphasizing the point pretty intensely. Yeah, which is funny because uh, in the most recent issue of Venom, the memory of flash thompson was brought back by the symbiote and proved to be the coolest more heroic one between him and uh eddie brock right <laughs> and so it's a character with a sordid legacy it's kind of yeah. interesting yeah, this is as you said this is the flash of the early days of spider-man particularly the ditko days and maybe the early romita days um who was more bully than anything else mm -hmm. um I think later under Romita, he was more like Reggie in in uh, in what call in Archie or something, just an annoying member of the gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I could see that. Yeah, so I mean, this comic really harkens to a lot of things, but if you just read it on its own, I think it's interesting. But uh, did you have anything more in this more recent Flash Thompson Spider Man? No, I mean just to reiterate overwork. I was impressed that Jerry Conway can use all the modern comic book techniques and create a short story, which those modern comic book techniques make it even harder to do a short story. Um, and that that short story aspect, I think, plays into what you're talking about within the what ifs. They usually just change one thing and don't show all the dominoes fall because that would require a longer story. It, it gives you a shorthand. But because um, certainly Peter's whole life would be entirely different if Uncle Ben was alive and he was a normal kid. But there you go. I and and on your recommendation, I read there an a seventies or early eighties what if called what if someone else besides Spider Man had been bitten by a radioactive spider, which included three different people, including Flash Thompson. And in that one, Flash Thompson murders or accidentally kills someone when he goes to fight as a wrestler. Crusher, yeah. 
Right. And then becomes a wanted criminal and disguises himself as Spider-Man to go out and fight crime. And he dies ultimately when in his first battle with the vulture, because he's dropped from a great distance and has no spider webs with which to save himself. Yep. He gets dropped like a bad spinoff there. The biggest idea, I guess is, you know, it's Peter Parker's genius that helps him survive as Spider-Man as much as his other powers. Right. The idea being if he had web shooters, he'd survive because that's a scene in the initial fight. But it just seems funny to me because, I mean, how many superheroes just have like one power and, you know, make whatever work. And And even without the web shooters, he's got to survive. So, you know, whatever your powers are, you're going to be put in a situation where you survive if you're, you know, the main hero of a book. Right. But, um, so it was kind of cheating, but again, sort of a cheating way. It might be cheating in the sense of the normal rules of comics, but a way to highlight aspects of the Marvel universe or of the Spider-Man mythos. Right. So each one sort of focuses, well, both focus on Spider, uh, Peter Parker being a gentler soul than, than Flash Thompson. But, <laughs> uh, and, but one focuses more on the morality and one maybe focuses on all some of Peter Parker's other qualities, like his, his genius, his science genius. And well, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it, it, it is that aspect of genius. He might be kinder to us now, but I mean, back in the day, the original Spider-Man's kind of a jerk. So right. it's kind of a funny, funny odd comparison. <laughs> Well, it's being true to his being kind of a selfish teenager. And then when he becomes less selfish, still wishing he could be a selfish teenager, I suppose. He's not like a saint who's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm out there saving people and I don't care that it hurts my own life. He does it in the end anyway. But So what, what I like about what ifs, and I think a lot of them were really bad in the 70s, but I still love the concept of what if because it it plays with the fact that you know marvel continuity it's it's inside baseball and it it reflects on the fact of the importance of the marvel universe and how how the pieces fit together or at least we imagine together yeah no it's funny looking at some of them though because there's some what ifs that get pulled that have been pulled back since and right maybe don't have the same like one of my favorite covers is uh what if Spider-Man's clone hadn't died or something? Right. And now, of course, Spider-Man's clone hadn't. Well, a ton of uh, what-ifs became... It's almost like the writers were mining what-ifs for ideas to make it, make it reality. And, you know, what if Jane Foster were Thor? And yeah, what a preposterous idea that was back then. And now we've had that be part of the main thread. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, especially with the spider thing... Isn't there right now like a spider verse with all yeah. these alternate? I think I saw that comic on the shelves this week. Um, all these alternate Spider-Men from different universes. So it's like any what if is real, just in another universe that you're eventually going to meet up with them in some big event comic. Right. It, it took all this and kind of made, especially with uh, Exiles as well, it kind of made the whole what if idea feel like a multiverse thing in dc and spider gwen that's like what if it's like a what if turned into a series and spun out into a whole universe right um, 
And I was thinking, because I also read one of the current other current one-shot what ifs, what if Thor was raised by frost giants? And in that, it was a fun little thing where Thor and Loki are both being raised by, not Suter, I forget the name, because that's a fire giant, but uh, whatever the name of the king of the frost giants is. And once again, Thor is the favored son, <laughs> but that makes Loki kind of the good guy. It was a fun little thing to read, but there's already many alternate Thors that exist in the general storyline. There's a frog Thor. There's an alien Thor. What, what's his name? Beta uh, Ray Bill. Beta Ray Bill. There are, there's a Jane Foster Thor. There's a Thor from the Ultimate Universe who has met up with Thor at times. And then we have the young Thor, the current Thor, and the old Thor, who often meet each other in the Jason Aaron Thors. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if this Thor from the Ice Giants 1 universe shows up in a regular Thor story not too far in the future. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like the, the beauty of What If was when the uh, Marvel Universe was a limited place and then the what ifs were truly on their own. And now over time, because they've had to write so many stories in the, the 57 years, because the Marvel Universe is my age, 50, 57 years of the, that's how I remember how old it is. The 57 years of the Marvel Universe, they've had to go back to the well on all these what if things and make them just part of the endless tapestry. Yeah, no, I uh, I read another What If from this recent batch that was, I think it was just What If X-Men, which is a bad title, but uh, it was basically Cable and Domino were in a Tron-like situation where they had to keep things in order. Was that based on some specific issue where they yeah, ran? That was the crazy thing. It, it was totally its own thing. It had no relation to any continuity that I'm aware of. It was just a totally out there idea. And it was a fresh, fun one-shot that... So it's more like, what if I want to do an alternate short story about Cable? <laughs> right. Domino, in this case, because she is not going and Cable doesn't right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Sorry, I, to me, Cable is the, the famous one, but yeah, Domino. They're both big in my household. So the, the newer ones seem almost like they might just be setting up some non-what-if continuity at some point to me right but i still enjoy them i mean it's fun uh, well i should say that's true of the thor one and maybe of this cable one maybe we'll see more of this tron cable and domino unless they were killed at the end of that story yeah what's weird about this recent batch of what ifs is it's hard to believe that they're going to do a series of weird one shots or anything like this without some larger purple right yeah and I, I don't really see the through line on this one. Maybe it's just to throw out some ideas and see if some things maybe had a little more cachet than they realized. But I think we're seeing, I mean, I'm totally wildly guessing here, but Marvel has for a year now had a new editor in chief. And I think we're seeing his version of doing something a little different than what Marvel had been doing in recent years. Hmm. I think he's working harder to play on nostalgia. So there's various riffs on nostalgia coming up is going to be one shots of things like where monsters dwell and things like that stuff that really 
only would resonate with people who've been reading comics a long time in my mind. But there's all these sort of nostalgic one shots coming along. And I think so that's how I'm interpreting the what they're playing to the nostalgia of the what if. And since they know in the current market, nothing lasts very long, they, they say, what the heck, let's just put them out as one shots and not even call them a series or something. That's my guess. Yeah, no, I mean, with that sort of monster idea, if they did some romance comics, like, I just feel maybe some of the ideas to just do some different stuff. They have the they have the throw to do it. So why not? Because, well, maybe we'll see a bunch of one shot, you know, Millie the model and whatever the other classic, you know, titles are. Yeah, from Marvel's old romance days. Another what if I read and enjoyed a lot was a one of these so they both put out a bunch of what if one shots and then a bu bunch of these $1 true believers. Each one is also called a number one for no apparent reason. Um, and so I, that's how I got the Gwen Stacy, what if Gwen Stacy lived. And I also grabbed what if the Fantastic Four had not gained their powers, which I totally missed back in the day, but it's, it's drawn by John Byrne in his Fantastic Four Prime and it looks really good. And it's a really fun story of sort of taking their first adventure with Mole Man and just making them a team of adventurers with a scientific genius as one of their members. I found it a lot of fun, and it again kind of played on the idea of heroes. These people are heroes, whatever their situation. You could imagine a Marvel Universe where there are no superheroes, but there's still uh, great sort of comic book level dangers like Mole Man with his, all his monsters trying to take over Earth and having heroes who are just regular humans battle battle that out. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, and I think that's one of the cooler things about What If uh, is that, you know, everybody has some of their favorites and it's a comic you could very much pick up an issue of and enjoy. Right. And you don't, well, except for those ones you mentioned where they started making a continuity between them, you right. just cherry pick what you like. Oh, there's What If about a character I like, I'll pick that one up. Or I've always wondered, you know, what it would have been like if Gwen Stacy lived. So I'll pick up that particular comic. Unfortunately, the Gwen Stacy, the what if Gwen Stacy ends badly? I now just remembered. And Peter Parker becomes even becomes identified as Spider-Man and becomes a, a on-the-run criminal and can't marry Gwen. Yep. So my in my childhood, because I read, I can't remember if it was a reprint or the original of the Gwen Stacy death. I longed for Peter and Gwen Stacy to have a happy ending. Just won't give it to him, even in a what if. Yeah, no, that's funny now, because I remember hearing about it later, obviously. And most of the people at Marvel were under the impression Gwen was the most boring character. Right. And they wanted to just make way. And apparently that wasn't the case. But there's also a lot of fan letters kind of putting off Gwen. <laughs> Really, before they killed her, a lot of fan letters complaining about her. Well, not saying like you should kill her, but being like, oh, I think, you know, Peter should be with Mary Jane or um, Betty Brandt or whatever it would be. Yeah, so I I think because I was whatever, 11 or something, I just thought that's his girlfriend. That's who he loves. So that's cool. I didn't stop to think about how it should be Mary Jane or anything, even though she said you've hit the jackpot tiger, which should have been a good <laughs> giveaway to me. <laughs> well how about since you are a reader who came into comics at a much later date when you first encountered what if what what did that idea appeal to you or did it seem just stupid to you 
No, um, one of my earliest comics is what if Spider-Man kept his cosmic powers? And I love that issue. It actually got me interested to go read the issues where he had the cosmic powers. And I actually preferred the what if when right. it was all said and done. But, um, but no, I mean, I, I liked him. But when I it was early collecting, I wanted to read the real comics and not get caught up in, you know, what if. Right. Well, uh, the, the real versus the unreal I think you have to mostly want the real and then the occasional what if. But to me, what uh, the what if comics just really reflect the power of the Marvel Universe. I don't think, you know, what if Superman and Batman never became friends or whatever. I don't know. It just doesn't seem as powerful in the DC Universe. Maybe it is now that the DC Universe is more coherent. And DC Universe had the wonderful Elseworlds, which I loved, actually. So I, I shouldn't put them down but the what if just seems particularly about that feeling of continuity of marvel well i i see what you're saying though overall i think i prefer the elseworlds model to the what if model they're more thoroughgoing alternate universes where everything's changed right generally or sometimes it's just different aspects like there's um what is it speeding bullets what if um Superman basically became Batman instead of Superman. <laughs> I think uh, I own that, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. I actually have a lot of Elseworlds that I haven't read, but that I bought cheaply here and there. So maybe we could do an Elseworlds podcast someday, pick out a, f a few prime subjects. Yeah. The, the, there's a lot to it, and some of those Elseworlds kind of took on a life of their own. Red Sun or True Brit or... Um, you know, I was facing the one thing I don't like about Elseworlds is about 90% of them are Batman. Right. They're almost all Batman, which I generally like. Another thing about, I mean, just a side thing about what ifs is sometimes they're just wacky. And I like that. Like, what if Dazzler became the Herald of Galactus? Or Aunt May. Is Aunt May become the Herald of Galactus? I have missed that one. Yeah. What if the Hulk became a barbarian? Um, I mean, of course, there's what if Conan walked the modern times, although that actually is not one of the better what ifs. But the, as I've said before, often the idea of the what if is better than, than the effort. Back in the 70s and early 80s, they often put the less good writers and less good artists on what if. I don't think they took it very seriously in the Marvel offices. What if, I'm just looking, what if Doom had become a hero? And we've we've had that happened just recently in the regular yeah maybe um one of my not my biggest complaint about current marvel comics but maybe it's become too loosey-goosey too much of every what if can happen again because they've had to fill stories for 57 years and they have they have that need to make everything feel interconnected Right. Well, I think part of the problem with what they've done, which I mean, I think answers to a lot of these what ifs is they've made a lot of the villains have this heroic streak. Right. But then they, with that, they kill off all their antagonists or make it so they're not accessible for the story. Yeah. Didn't, I, I think he's bad again, but for a while, wasn't Magneto one of the X-Men practically? That's happened like three times over. Sure. So, well, reforming villains and then making them turn evil again, I guess, also is kind of just a cycle then. 
Yeah, Magneto, though, got turned into a baby and got very angry about it, and so he lashed out. I haven't I haven't seen that. <laughs> well, that was that was back in the early 90s. So oh. it was at the tail end of Claremont's run. When you were probably beginning to read X-Men. Yeah, no, when he's evil again is X-Men number one. Oh. And it, you know, it's one line in there. Like, otherwise, it feels like a classic X-Men story. But when you read through a little further, it's like, oh, he's really mad that he got turned into a baby, which is pretty legit. But the genocide angle's a bit much. <laughs> I think I bought the Jim Lee X-Men number one, but I think I didn't understand very much of it at all back then because I hadn't been reading X-Men for about six years at that point. Huh. I That's funny because for most people, that was... Uh, their first X-Men comic or their first X-Men comic in forever. And I think it's pretty well received from what I, I understand. I can't even remember anything about it. I just remember thinking, okay, this is not, not like the X-Men I used to like. And so I stopped reading it. Probably worth three visits. I'm pretty sure that's still the number one selling issue of a comic of all time, right? All time, yeah. Yeah. I Was it like 8 million or something crazy like that? Yeah, yeah, you know, we're just lagging a little bit behind now. <laughs> just a little. I guess, you know, we, if Jim Lee never did anything else, he can stand out in comic book history just for that. Yeah. One of the weirdest what-ifs is what if the original Marvel bullpen had become the Fantastic Four, written and drawn by Jack Kirby? And it's, a, it's at a much higher caliber of art and dialogue than most of the... 70s what ifs that i've read mm -hmm. but it, it really lacks something despite that so it's really a very disappointing read because it it doesn't say anything it doesn't say anything about the marvel universe and it doesn't really say anything about the marvel bullpen mm. um maybe there's little hints in there about about the characters of people but i'm i'm not sure in fact, he makes Stan Lee into the leader of the group and everything, which I thought was interesting. Supposedly, he was all angry at Stan Lee for claiming all the credit for creating the Marvel Universe, which is my segue into the other subject we want to talk about this evening. Um, Stan Lee recently died. Everyone else has talked about it before we have, but I have been part of the group of people who wants to give more credit to Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, particularly Jack Kirby. But thinking about it, and it was actually a podcast by this guy, Scott Edelman, who, who so I listened to his podcast, and he used to work at Marvel. And he referred to Stan Lee as the creator of the Marvel Universe. So whether Stan Lee created the thing, he probably created the idea of this interconnected universe and obviously he created the personality of marvel comics right so with that the others more informed than i have weighed in so yeah you know because i think you know jack kirby was a fountain of ideas but i don't think he had i mean he tried in the new gods and did a lot of good stuff there but i don't think he i don't i suspect especially from reading this what if that he was not the person with the skill to connect everything together yeah, that, that's something interesting. And you mentioned the whole Ditko uh, Kirby kind of debacle, which I thought about a lot too, especially in light of a lot of things. I was thinking about it more um, recently because I was getting pretty heavy into Ditko right before his passing. 
right. earlier this year and reading a lot about him, reading about his work, reading other works and whatnot, uh, seeing what I could get my hands on, yeah, especially with a bit of a Ditko hunt when you were visiting here last. So, yeah, yeah, which was great. Part of our conversations. Yeah, and I found out this uh, onomatopoeia book that I picked up is was supposed to be in conjunction with Mr. A as these kind of new uh, heroes with kind of social criticism. So whereas in retrospect, a lot of people put a lot on Mr. A uh, as far as Ditko's work, which he did do a lot. He did 28 issues, but a huge chunk of those were done after the year 2000 when most people stopped caring about anything uh, yeah. Did. yeah i think what was there maybe before then two or three issues spread over some decades or something yeah and like he's credited with inventing the question which he certainly did but he did one comic and i think the question kind of appeared in something else he did he may have only done a few issues of the original blue Be or not the original but the modern blue beetle modern ish blue the silver age blue beetle I thought he did the original Blue Beetle. Well, there was I mean, a Blue Beetle in the Golden Age, and I don't think that he was yeah. working at that point. Okay. I think, I mean, I think he started drawing professionally sometime in the mid 50s. All right. Okay. Like, but I, I think that he, while working at Charlton, was asked or decided to create a new version of the Blue Beetle, of a character named the Blue Beetle. Oh, that's crazy. Because that means the Blue Beetle legacy goes through, what, four publishers? At least, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I probably four publishers. I don't really know. <clears throat> so, um, but yeah, conclusion but, that the fact that he did all this Mr. A, that, but over a long period of time, was... Well, was that, I, I mean, Dicko's credited with a lot, and he did do the things that he's credited with, but it doesn't carry the same weight as when people point to Stan Lee and his uh, even co-creation on something like, to put it off from the other things we're going to talk about, like Iron Man or uh, the Hulk or whatever, right? or the Avengers even, like, you know... Stanley's work on that wasn't, you know, like a one-off thing that he was done. Like he put a lot into those characters that has informed them forever going on. Whereas the question, there are some aspects of it, but when you think about the question, the amount of that that's actually held to what Ditko did is right. Right. And, and the other thing, too, is when you go back and you try to read a lot of Ditko's comics, um, they're they're hard to right. read in a lot of ways. And when you go back and read Kirby's more solo or solo work, I, I would say it's hard to read, but it's there's a lot of interesting stuff. People love Commandy. People there, love the new gods. Of, I would say like in Commandy and New Gods and other things, there's a lot of intelligence and ideas but he doesn't have that that there's something he, missing he there is something missing and he can't draw you in with words and with a per he doesn't give things the personality that so right. Marvel comics had a strong personality and that came from stan lee and and as far as i know the whole sense and idea of this big universe this shared universe came from stan lee and what i think of when I read, you know, as a boy reading Stan's soapbox or 
the footnotes and everything gave you a sense of community. So there, there wasn't just a Marvel universe that had a personality, but you share, Stanley made you share in that. And, and from what I've read, Stanley really wanted there to be a bullpen that was a community. And later that happened when the new younger people moved in. They all hung out together every night and played baseball together all the time in a way that the old Silver Age pros never did. But Stanley wanted that connection and community, and he gave that to us in my mind. Yeah. And what I was building to is kind of by even by the most cynical viewing of what Stanley did, you can't deny that he brought so much to the table. Like yeah. when you read that early Fantastic Four, that early Spider-Man, that those early Avengers, and you compare it to those co-workers of, you know. When they're writing on their own. Yeah, there, there's just undeniably something lost. Right. If nothing else, he was a great writer of dialogue, you know. Mm -hmm. and, but I think he was also, it's hard to quantify what an editor does, but he was clearly a great editor. I mean, that none of that stuff could have happened without an editor making it happen. And even after he stopped writing for a while, he was an editor. And I, I've definitely, you know, again, in my reading of history and stuff, realized that Stanley was making lots of interesting editorial choices all along. He was a very good publisher too. As Marvel changed when he moved out of the publisher's seat. Mm. I'm not quite sure when that happened, but I think in the late seventies or so, or maybe even later than that, but. Right. And I, I saw a lot of interesting interactions happening around Stanley's passing. Uh, our buddy online on Twitter, 64 page special was pointing out that he's going to snap once people started crediting him with the creation of Captain America, <laughs> um, which inevitably happened. There's a lot of talk about the creator versus co-creator. Um, I ended up in a bit of a tryst with someone because I was pointing out, you know, Stanley did all these great things and people are pointing to that, but I also wanted to point to the fact that there are some foibles that he overcame too. And he was, you know, a man, not just the myth though. It's harder to separate with Stanley. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, the comic books are so complicated because it's say uh, you say you created the question, but you only wrote one issue. And then all these other writers came along and added all kinds of layers and aspects to that character. Um, it's almost like everybody, everybody who comes along helps with the creation of that character. Mm. And um, Stan Lee grabbed more of the credit, but he certainly deserved a good chunk of the credit. I tend to dislike people who always want the spotlight on themselves, but given he was that kind of person and Steve Ditko was the opposite, um, it's just kind of natural and he was, in the process of pointing the spotlight on himself, he was also creating this community. I, I think our fandom wouldn't exist without that feeling around comic books that Stanley created. I think if everything had been like Silver Age DC, there wouldn't have been that much fandom and there wouldn't have been that kind of excitement and loyalty to comic books that has been generated in so many of us. I mean, I can see a lot of what you're saying there. I, I think. I mean, it's very speculative. <laughs> well, also like, you know, I mean, he was willing to point to him, but he was also willing to boost things up. I mean, he was a salesman as much as anything else. Whereas Dicko was 
the craftsman and wanted less to do with that. But with that comes this kind of, the punk dilemma is how I always heard it referred to, you know, tell me you that. can only, so the punk dilemma is like, you want to be pure and to yourself and you don't want to get caught up in like marketing or be like popular for popular sake or anything, but you can only be so successful with that mentality. You can't chase true success because once you hit a certain level people are going to start calling you a sellout or you know it's not as pure as it was and that's silly yeah to a certain extent and one could almost argue he did his best to point the spotlight at everyone i mean he constantly talked about the artists and you know gave them nicknames and and made sure that their names were mentioned in all the announcements for new comics coming up and in Stanley's soapbox and all of that. Um, whereas in the past, if there was even an artist's name mentioned on a uh, comic book, it would just be scribbled in the corner of the splash page or something very, very unnoticeable. And often there was nothing. Right. Uh, Accreditation of the creators on a comic wasn't even a guarantee when Marvel started. Yeah. And I, I think I never would have thought of like that there were letterers, except that he always made gave credit to letterers, usually with a little joke. And Artie Simek schlepped into the office and lettered this or something like that in the end. But even that joke pointed out that there was a letterer there, you know, something I would not have thought of as a young reader or maybe even an older reader. Right. And I, uh, I don't know. We we went to a panel on lettering that left me less than impressed with letters as a uh, but back hand lettering and and they weren't yeah, no, you can't question that artists. they were just saying this person did the lettering and mm -hmm. the average reader you know when I <clears throat> when I read uh, I don't know Time Magazine which doesn't exist anymore but I never thought about who does the typesetting at Time Magazine but Stan right. Lee would say and typeset by bold Barney Bumble shoot or whatever you know what i'm saying he would give he he was trying to bring everybody in and create this community right. um yeah the merry marvel marching society <laughs> and then foom friends of old marvel <laughs> i was a member of foom that's why i have to bring it up it was very sad that i came too late for the merry marching society <laughs> Yeah, and it's something that, that's been sad to watch in the past few years, all these kind of unneeded controversies around Stan Lee and stuff with his handlers or things that ultimately you can just attribute to the fact that he was, what, 94, 96? Five, I think when he died. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people, they feel they have to say negative things. So even after his death, I feel like maybe it's this internet thing, but people feel they they have to bring up the negative even when they're assessing the guy's life. I kind of find like uh, relatives that have died recently, you know, when they were alive, I was like picking at little faults of theirs, but when they're dead, you step back and look at their whole life and you see all this good they did or attempted to do. Um, Stan Lee was not a villain. He was not he was very upset when Jack Kirby left and he was upset about Ditko leaving. He may have done some things wrong that made them leave, but he was trying to be a good guy as he knew within the context of the business that he worked in. So I don't know. And, you know, and I think for all of us, just as readers and fans and pop culture, interest in pop culture, 
Stan Lee has only done good. He hasn't done us a bad turn <laughs> as readers and, and fans of superheroes. Right, though, I do think... Uh, so what Stan Lee did, something that always bugged me about Stan Lee, to go to the negative that you're okay. talking about, um, <laughs> is Stan Lee around himself created a cult of personality. While he was trying to bring... You know, attribution to other people, which is definitely great. I, I can't help but notice when I talk to old people from the bullpen, I've heard tons of them through uh -huh. various conventions by now. They're all they all talk about Stan Lee in this kind of stilted way. It's positive, but you know, it's like, oh, Stan did this, Stan did that, and they all have some weird, crazy story about Stan Lee. And although like when we heard that Jim Starlin story, I thought it was all affectionate towards Stan. Right. You know, no, no one says, you know, negative things about it. It's all in a certain way, but it's all. I mean, he was that Jim all, Starlin story where, you know, he's dancing around on the desk and he sits on his glasses every time mm -hmm. and he has what, three or four wigs on display Right, <laughs> made him just this kind of kooky eccentric guy. I mean, when I think of all the bosses I've worked for that, you know, no one totally loves their boss, obviously. And right. But, you know, that's a more interesting boss. Definitely. And I think I, Stan Lee was fighting his publisher all the time to get to be allowed to do things that were more creative and individualistic. And everyone blames all the decisions on Stan when they were actually Martin Goldberg, Gold, Goodman's decision, Martin Goodman's decision. I, I mean, I don't know. Just around him, he, he kind of created this air and it definitely pushed a lot of people away. He he wasn't, you know, super easy to work with. You can tell because he was a very demanding personality in a certain way. And I think there's a lot of good, but I think there's also a lesson in what did happen with Kirby and Ditko and kind of the geniuses around him that left. And yeah, but that's kind of, it makes me think of the, with Kirby and Lee and well, I know less about the Ditko breakup, but the Kirby and Lee thing seems like they're, your classic rock band that can't get along when the lead singer gets too much credit and the guitarist is is bitter about it. It doesn't seem like anything outside of the ordinary, just sort of human experience to me. Right? That, you know, it's not that all lead singers in rock bands are evil people, but they tend to get all the attention and then other people get jealous of them and they, they're only human and they don't handle it as well as they should. I mean, I don't know, that's my, my view of it at this point. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's an important corrective to let the world know that that there were these really important collaborators with Stan Lee. Yeah, uh, so either way, though, rest in peace. And if you look at Stan Lee in a way, he in a in a um, he was struggling for his own survival, I think. And by making Marvel synonymous with himself, they couldn't get rid of him. So <laughs> over the years, they got rid of him a few times and then eventually they had to bring him back and. So I think in his later years, he was they were giving him like a million dollar a year stipend or something to just not work for other people because they needed him to represent Marvel. And so, yeah, you could say he should have brought everyone with him, but he may have been just viewing it of, you know, how do I survive? You know, once my once Martin Goodman sells Marvel to, I think he sold Marvel in 1969 or 1970. Stan Lee had to make sure he was going to stay in a position, you know, because everyone else in comics keeps losing their jobs. Uh, you and just we... got to find work. Dicko was doing <laughs> Power Rangers, whatever he had to do. Right.
Well, anyway, to me, the what if ties in well with the whole idea of Stan Lee's, for better or worse, but I think mostly for better, gave us this Marvel Universe thing, which which became the way to do superhero comics up until the present in, for most people. You know, uh, Humanoids is announcing they're starting a superhero universe. No one says, oh, we're just starting a line of superheroes where they're all going to be separate. Everyone says they're going to be together in a universe. And that, you know, that's Stan Lee. That comes from him. Uh, you know, he probably didn't all at once decide to do that, but he, he realized as he was going along that, that this was what was making Marvel, one of the things making Marvel popular. Yeah. It, no, I mean. took DC till 1985 or 86 to figure that one out. Did it? That doesn't sound right. I don't feel like until Crisis, when was Crisis? Was that 86? Oh, I was like, what about Justice League? I don't, I don't think that they, I mean, starting in the early 80s, they tried to make their universe more connected. But, but I don't think before Crisis, there was an overall connectivity that, you know, was taken very seriously. Okay. <clears throat> That's my, my impression. All right. Okay, well, on that note... Um, we will never stay dead or at least the superheroes will never stay dead someday we will stay dead but not for a long time uh, as long as uh, Matt makes sure to w look both ways before it crosses the street I'll try 